Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira. And much more. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem. Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Assalamu brothers and sisters. I'd like to welcome you here to another Friday Circle. Uh, Jazakallah Khair for attending. Um, today we'll be talking about how to guard the honor of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. First of all, my apologies for the delay in starting today. We had a few technical issues. Inshallah, we have Brother Akmal. Uh, who's going to be discussing this very important issue that uh, I'm sure all of us... Attack on the Prophet Sallallahu uh, the honor of the Prophet Sallallahu and the honor of Islam uh, over the last few weeks, uh, starting with the uh, attacks on Islam by Macron, and now uh, with these issues of the people being killed in France um, over the last uh, few days and this morning. Uh, we're seeing a continuous bombardment of an attack uh, on the Muslims. And we saw in the last few days the uh, cartoons uh, being uh, plastered across the buildings. And uh, these people have no shame whatsoever. They're, they continue to insult our beloved Prophet wasallam. And uh, hopefully, inshallah, today Brother Akmal can give us an understanding of uh, how we can protect the honor of the Prophet wasallam. So without further ado, I'd like to pass you over to Brother Akmal. Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters. Alhamdulillah, 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 how we should defend the honor of the Prophet Muhammad We've seen in recent weeks, again, um, the republication uh, of cartoons that um, attack the Prophet and denigrate his personality. It's not the first time it's happened uh, a number of times over the last few years in Europe. Uh, the Charlie Hebdo uh, Danish cartoons prior to that. So... This is not something new. This is something we've become accustomed to to some extent. It's something that we hear about fairly, fairly regularly. And, you know, my first point, actually, I just want to make a few points today, inshallah, before we open it up for a discussion. Uh, and my first point is very much exactly that, which is these things are beginning to happen more often, uh, more regularly. And Muslims can start to become desensitized to this. They can start to feel that first time something which uh, we're not happy with and we we express our our frustration over what's happened um second time again third fourth time after a while we start to think well actually this is just how it is uh, we just accept it um and we kind of and you know we've seen a lot of muslims who kind of come forward and protested and have demonstrated on the street uh, express their, their anger and frustration over this 
But there may be others who, who are starting to feel that, you know what, this is just how it is here in this part of the world. We need to just get on with it. And we just need to kind of accept that, you know, our point of view is not going to be taken. And, you know, this is just how they So we just uh, we just carry on and we start to become desensitized to it. And this is, of course, quite dangerous for us um, because uh, the Prophet وسلم, as we I'm sure know, has told us quite categorically, you know, we should uh, change it with our hand if we're able to do so. And in, it's in a way that the Sharia permits. And if you're unable to change it with your hand, then, you know, forbid it with your tongue or change it with your tongue. And if you're unable to do that, then detest it in your heart. And if we cannot even detest it in our hearts, our reaction is indifferent. We see this, then we've got to really ask ourselves whether we have become desensitized. And the consequence, because what's left of our iman, you know, what's left of our belief, if we can't even feel uh, an issue, we don't even feel there's an issue, then actually, and we just carry on with our lives, you know, go to work, you know, do our chores, and it's just another thing that happens. Then really, we've got to ask ourselves some quite deep questions. And we have to remember who we're talking about here. You know, we're talking about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. you know, who is, um, you know, the final messenger that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to mankind to Quran, you know, he is the best of creation. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, he even tells us in the Quran, you know, how he describes the Prophet You know, when he says, Inna Allah wa malaykatahu yasalluna ala nabi, Ya ayuhaladheena aminu sallu. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that verily Allah and the, and the angels, they send blessings, they confer things on the Prophet You know, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, creator of the universe. And the angels, they confer blessings on the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi And then there's an instruction on us also to confer blessings on the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi So we're talking about some ordinary individual here. We're not talking about uh, a genius or somebody who uh, made their mark in their time. We are talking about the best of creation. We are talking about the final messenger. We are talking about the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has instructed us and the angels to confer blessings on. A very noble person, a person who changed the world uh, after he was sent with the Quran. All of this going on, let's not just uh, think it's just another day. And we just get on with our lives, uh, become detestized of the situation. Actually, we should think very hard every time it happens, no matter it happens five times, ten times, a hundred times, we should really um, check ourselves and ask ourselves, do we feel hurt by this? You know, does it, do we take stock of what happened? And the danger of becoming desensitized brothers and sisters is, as you know, then it becomes normal, then it becomes acceptable. And then people that it doesn't stop there. Uh, the aggravation becomes more serious next time. Um, so unless we take a stand and unless we are able to check ourselves and make sure that step number one, this has hurt us. This is a serious matter. We're not going to let it pass just to allow it to drift on. You know, it's our, kind of a, our first kind of response to all of this, to ask ourselves, 
you know, what's, must, what's the state of my iman? Has it, is it literally on the edge? Is anything there? Is anything kind of rebounding? Is anything hurting as a result of this? Um, so that's really just an introductory point about making sure that we um, we understand the nobility of the Prophet ﷺ and how serious an attack on his personality is. And it's no light matter. You know, if somebody was to attack our mother, we would take it with great offense. You know, if somebody was to depict our parents in cartoons in a way and project it on buildings and dishonor them and describe them in the most lewd ways, you know, we would be upset, ang- you know, angered and frustrated. I want to do something about it. And the Prophet ﷺ taught us that none of you truly believe until I am dearer to them uh, you know, than their own parents. You know, I am dear to them and their families. So if we are feeling like that, or we would feel like that, if our parents, our loved ones, were and, you know, disgraceful pictures of them were projected on public buildings, you know, what embarrassment that would be, be extremely hurtful. Then what about the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, who he said is dearer to us than our own selves and our own parents and our own families. So let's get that right. Let's put things in the right context and uh, let's start off on the right foot. Now, second thing I want to say, uh, we've seen, as uh, Aftar mentioned, you know, there has been considerable outcry um, in terms of, you know, in response to what's happened. And, you know, people are slightly confused. You know, how do we stop this? You know, it's happened before, it's happened again, and it doesn't seem to be going away. If anything, people seem to be more strident in wanting to do these things. Hang on, what are we going to, what can we do about this? You know, can we do anything about this? You know, some people, you know, they uh, they use they follow their frustrations, they follow their anger. It's not the Islamic way. The Islamic way is to, to look at what Allah's messengers guided us on these points. Ask, you know, what do we do? And, you know, we've heard in recent days people saying, oh, great idea, let's boycott French goods. You know, let's stop buying, I don't know what it is, French, French bread and French uh, products in our homes, French um, appliances. Let's kind of make a stand and let's basically stop buying and that will hurt them economically. And, you know, those who do this, it's a great example of them wanting to do something, you know, them wanting to actually do an action to demonstrate that they're happy about the situation. And actually, they want people to, to feel that. So it's coming from a good place. It's coming from a sincere sentiment. Question really, actually doing that, but, um, but about, you know, how effective these individual boycotts can be. You know, people get angry, people get upset. Uh, they do this on a temporary basis and then uh, you know the whole situation calms down and then people forget about it and those disappear at the same time we go back to buying the French goods and everything's back to normal that's at an individual level and it's quite ironic actually because President Erdogan you know, he stood up uh, Turkish parliament and told everybody to, to boycott French goods which was slightly unusual actually because if there's anybody who can carry out an effective boycott of French goods the individuals might have some impact, but really it's governments who trade with the French, who exchange billions of dollars in trade, you know, not the not the pennies in the pocket, not the pounds in the wallet, but you know, the that are 
between you know countries and France if they were to say look you know we're going to prevent imports you know we're not even going to let them get to the shops these things are not even going to arrive on our shelves you know we're going to make a stand and prevent these things from coming to the country that would have that would have that kind of boycott can make a difference okay but it's unusual how we're being asked as individual consumers to be making those decisions not to say that it shouldn't be done or it's not a something that has some impact but actually you know where is french imports where saudi arabia's ban on french imports you know if they're if they're serious about defending the honor of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam where are those that is an effective boycotting strategy that would actually make the french listen and i don't just say that theoretically you know we have a precedent um we have history to demonstrate the fact that actually you know um when boycotts or threats at a state level are issued people stand up and listen okay especially where trade is at stake especially where strategic locations are at stake you know people stand up and listen you know a famous example which many of you may have come across is a, you know, a play at the end of the 1800s which was um put on was potentially going to be put on called Muhammad it was actually about the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam it was by somebody called Henry uh, the 1890 and he was going to go forward and put the 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 play on in France uh, and he was going to depict the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in all sorts of uh, disgraceful ways and word got to the uh, got to sultan abdul hamid in turkey at the time and he wrote a letter to the french to say look you know this is not on is unacceptable okay and we're not going to sit idly by while you um go on this particular play and you know subsequent discourse led to the fact that that play was cancelled um the actors who were meant to play in that particular drama were sent back to their home country some of them from the UK and the the muslims got an apology by the french president at the time that he too thought it was a disgraceful thing to be doing okay so we have a situation where somebody like we were thinking is about to in the name of our in the name of uh freedom of expression or whatever the justification on this occasion might be is about to you know uh commission a play uh, you know have it presented to people it um and presented to potentially primarily anonymously audience um depicting the process of in all sorts of disgraceful ways and uh, intervention intervention by the Ottoman Khilaf at the time who are able to make people pay attention to them and as a result of that we see a very effective climb down on the part of the French in the play and we find that that particular disgrace was stopped Okay and uh, you know in this situation whilst individuals are protesting and even presidents are telling Muslims that they should boycott French goods we don't really see any tangible threat you know i know there's some words thrown around table but apart from words there isn't anything tangible there isn't anything which is um there's no there's no action which is actually being taken to say if you continue on this course of action then there's going to be uh, a response or something going to happen as a, as a result and what's what's more hurtful actually and what's more worrying 
for Muslims is that when the Prophet ﷺ is attacked, okay, we might hear some uh, words from Muslim leaders who come forward and, um, you know, kind of about their upset over what's happened or their disagreement with what the French have done. Um, however, when it comes to their own country, when it comes to their own, their own honour, Okay, then the attitude is completely different. An example of this is um, the Saudis, for example. In in nineteen eighty, there was a there was a, a kind of docudrama or something like this, which was put on uh, called the Princess. And um, anyone come across this? It was, a, it was a docudrama about a princess in Saudi Arabia who had gone uh, with somebody and gone and committed adultery and had an extramarital relationship and she was subsequently executed. The drama was essentially produced called Death of a Princess. It was about this Princess Michelle and it was going to expose this particular incident and expose the Saudis, embarrass the Saudis as to what they get up to behind closed doors and how behave and what kind of judicial process is prevalent in Saudi Arabia. Really go to town on Saudi Arabia and this particular through this particular incident. This infuriated the Saudis. It infuriated the Saudis. Okay, so this is the Saudi honor at stake, okay? Royal prestige which has been publicly humiliated. You're not talking about the Prophet here. We're not talking about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We're talking about the Saudi royal family and their public persona and their public perception is about to get, um, you know, completely uh, put, in, put in public and aired. And they were infuriated. They were, you know, not just annoyed. Uh, they took decisive action, okay, to try and make the um, people who put this documentary together to get them to stop. They try to put pressure on all sorts of governments to make it go away. For example, the British, um, they ordered the, sorry, the, the Saudis ordered the British ambassador to leave the country. Yeah, step number one. They, um, the British uh, ambassador, they also uh, declared that Saudi airspace was no uh, available to British flights, which had an economic impact on, you know, routes between Britain and the Far East. They became more expensive all of a sudden, unprofitable apparently as a result. And it wasn't just the Saudis, you know, the Lebanese, they joined in too. They said, we're also going to deny the space. Okay, you can't fly your planes over a particular territory. Okay, and so they really went to town. Okay, and at the beginning, they say, the UK press, they were all talking about freedom of expression. But as, you know, export orders became uh, under threat and could be cancelled, you know, various um, premiers and various ministers within the British government came forward and started to say that they found the film deeply offensive. The British Foreign Secretary, for example, at the time, Lord Carrington, said he found the film deeply offensive and he wished it had never been shown, okay? And similarly with the, the, the Americans, because there was a threat that the Americans would also resent a particular documentary about this princess in Saudi Arabia and therefore embarrass the Saudis. And, you know, 
adverts uh, in newspapers put pressure on the US government to stop it happening. You know, there's a famous incident where Mobile Oil, you know, oil company, Saudi relations, they took an advert out in the New York Times condemning the film and describing it a fairy tale to try and protect their interests with Saudi Arabia and so on and so forth, okay? So here we have a situation where, you know, a government has taken action, okay? And that action has been pretty decisive, okay? There's been expulsions of ambassadors. There has been closing of airspace. There has been threats of cancelling export orders. And obviously, Saudi Arabia, big customer for, you know, UK, US defence equipment and various other types of uh, industrial equipment as part of their oil industry, etc. You know, the threat of that money going away started to turn heads, caused open... Uh, condemnation by ministers uh, of government as well as big corporates of particular being aired potentially, okay? And uh, and it was all in the name of the royal family, okay? It's all in the name of the royal family. But my point is this. Firstly, you know, action by governments can be effective. Action can clearly be effective if they have the will. And, you know, what does it say about our Muslim countries who are willing to go this far to protect their image, their royal, their monarchical, their, their, their image of their kingdom, but they are not willing to go to these lengths when, as at the beginning, the, the life of the Prophet Muhammad the person that we honor more than anybody, any nation, okay, when he is depicted and pictures of him are masqueraded on public buildings, Okay, uh, yeah, old, you know, don't, don't buy French yogurt, yeah, or, or don't buy French bread, or maybe you know it's unwise of the French to do such and such. There's no, there's no pressure. There's no real action being taken by governments, and to some extent, we don't really expect these governments to do so because we know for, for various reasons that, quite frankly, their priorities are protection of their own nations and their own prestige and their own positions. And, you know, Islam is part of their cultural heritage. But as we can see before our eyes, when the sacred symbols and people of Islam are, uh, it's of lower rank than other things uh, in, in their minds. So, I mean, that's just kind of point number two. When people say, you know, what's an effective strategy? Like, what can we do? You know, how can we actually go and, you know, make the West pay attention and listen and how can we make them um, stop? And how can we make them uh, take down these cartoons? Is there a way? It sounds, it feels possible. You know, if it's left to me and you, maybe it is. You know, we can raise our voice. Uh, we can uh, try to present the argument as much as we can. But, you know, when the economy hurts, when political alliances are threatened, when trade is in question, then people do turn their heads, such as the world today, you know, that everything is structured around capitalism and people are primarily driven by economic interests. And when they are, as I say, threatened, then people stand to attention. So under Islamic rule, something like this, as we saw under Sultan Abdul Hamid II, you know, this would not be a light matter. We wouldn't say, oh, I send some, you know, um, obscure theatre in Paris, and it's just going to be presented to non-Muslims anyway. You know, we just turn turn a blind eye and just carry on. Got better things to be thinking about. Actually, you know, 
actually, you know, if we allow the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, to be uh, disgraced in this way and we allow people to become strident and emboldened in doing these actions, then worse will come, more will come. And as a point of principle, we we also don't accept this and it's not something which is acceptable to Muslims. Um, my third and kind of final point really is really um, something a bit more general actually and something to think about. And, and that is this really. It is that, you know, subhanAllah, there's something about the disbelief um, there's something about kufr, okay, which never quite hangs together. It never quite adds up, okay? There's some inconsistency. You know, despite the best minds being put forward to produce what they believe to be the best theories and ideologies, okay, there's always a wrinkle. There's always, you know, it's it exposed by itself at some point. And you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, he kind of refers to this in Surah Al-Kahf in the first ayah when he says, أَضْعُوذِ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ الحمد لله الذي أنزل على عبده الكتابة ولم يجعله إوجا Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he has sent down this Qur'an and revealed it to his servant. No crookedness. There's no kind of illogic in it. There's no kind of wrinkle in it. It all hangs together perfectly. This kitab and this Islam, which is explained in the Quran, it is consistent. There is no contradiction. Revealed over, you know, 20 years, spanning, you know, numerous 114 surah, you know, all of this Quran hangs together. No contradiction within it. Despite, despite the breadth of topics spoken about, everything from, you know, individual purity through to managing economy, everything from, you know, uh, the, the stories of the previous prophets through to descriptions of what is to come after this life. It is a colossal uh, kitab that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But there's no, there's no uh, irrationality, there's no contradiction, there's no, say, as it says in the ayah, there's no crookedness in it. There's no wrinkle, everything adds up. However, with kufr, what you find, despite the best minds and despite the best attempts, actually, you know, it doesn't add up. And it starts to expose itself uh, on its own course. You know, they say, you know, give them enough rope, they'll hang themselves. And why do I say this? Because, you know, we hear that all of this is being done, all of the kind of uh, flagrant display of these disgraced cartoons Okay, it's being done in the name of what? In the name of freedom of speech, you know, freedom of expression. This is a sacred tenant, you know, sorry, we can't let go of it. You know, if we give on this particular issue, then we're going to start censoring and that's not good. And, and we came to where we were through freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera. That's the argument, right? This is why they, and you know, nothing is sacred. Everything is game, you know. Um, God is game, no the billah, prophets are game. You know, I guess in theory, you know, uh, you know, our our loved ones are game, etc. This is the kind of argument, right? That you know, this freedom of expression, you're gonna just just have to live with it. You might not like it, but you gotta accept that people can say these things, and you disagree with it, and you live with it. This is the kind of argument put out there. However, we know that doesn't really make sense, and we can go through philosophical refutations of this particular point. 
you know, based upon the fact that limits the speech, limits everywhere. You know, I can't actually say something slanderous against somebody else because they could sue me, they could do me for libel. You know, in some countries we can't deny certain historical facts, not that anybody would want to do that, but it's just a point of view that you can't actually do that. Um, in France, actually, you know, uh, the flag is, is sacred and desecration of the flag is punishable in France, for example, right? So, you know, there's limits everywhere and nobody actually wants to live in a world where you can say whatever's on your mind and you can say whatever you think and and you don't care for the consequences and people have to just suck it up and live with it. That's not really a respectful world and it's a slippery slope to real breakdown in society and cohesion amongst people. You know, lack of respect that we see in society nowadays, the lack of any kind of dignity amongst people, all dissipating because people think, you know, I can say whatever I want and it's your problem, not mine, right? If you don't like it, it's your problem, not mine. And in Islam, you know, we might disagree. We might completely reject uh, other ways of life. However, you know, we are advised not to, um, in this way, just to disgrace people, just to disgrace Okay, if you disagree with something, you reject something, argue against it, debate it, highlight the inconsistencies. Don't go down this road of just thinking that humiliation somehow is a great thing. You know, what world do we live in actually thinking about it, that that, that humiliation is a sacred thing, that we, we should be allowed to humiliate people. I mean, how did that ever build a strong and dignified uh, society where you protect the right to go around humiliating people? Like, the opposite. But anyway, I kind of digress. The reason I highlight this, the fact that actually these things, you know, kufr doesn't hang in it, things don't add up, is because actually in the same few weeks, okay, where we've seen these these pictures and these discrepant cartoons being uh, shared widely and put on public uh, buildings and all, the, you know, as we've seen, you know, there's been some incidents, okay, to, for example, you know, in Mauritania, the French embassy commissioned a local artist to do a painting for the embassy. Okay, and all of this stuff kicked off. That Mauritanian uh, artist decided to do a cheeky painting of Mac as the head of his head on a snake. You've probably seen the pictures on social media. So here we have, you know, uh, an artist taking fun out of Macron, just an individual, really, right? you know, wearing a French scarf and the head of a snake. And the French, they decommission artists. They tell him to go home, basically, right? We don't want your painting anymore. And the reason given is that he has insulted one of the sacred symbols of the Republic. He's insulted one of the sacred... Hang on, you know, in the same week, you know, on the one hand, they are right to humiliate sacred symbols of others in the most flagrant ways in the name of freedom of speech. Yet when somebody does it to one of their own sacred symbols, okay, and pokes fun at it, okay, and it's an individual actually, it's not even against the Republic, they take it as a deep, and they decommission the artist, and they give him the reason that he's, he's done that insult, and therefore they don't like what he's done, and they reject what he's done. They should actually put it up at the embassy, okay, because it's proof that, you know, if you can give it, you can take it. If you believe in freedom of speech, be consistent with it. But the wrinkles and the logic and the contradictions lead to these kinds of double standards. You know, I, 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 
guys saying all sorts of things um, during the week. Has been calling, as I say, individuals to go out and boycotts. But you know, he called Macron mentally unstable. Called unstable. I'm sure, sure we all heard that, right? Um, so we heard that. Now, what was the response of various French officials? They said that this is rude and excessive, and it's not a productive path. You know, hang on a second. What do you mean rude? I thought humiliation and rudeness and mockery were pain. Okay, and now you're telling us, no, 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 no. You know, this is not the way that we have dialogue between people. You're not meant to be saying these things. These are excessive and rude comments. You know, these are excessive and rude comments. Well, hang on a second. You know, are you not the contradiction here? So wrinkle is exposed again. And, you know, as we've seen, European kind of countries have come to the the, the backing of um, the French president over this, right? They've kind of come out in in support and they've kind of said, we back you and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a Belgian MEP, you know, he, uh, you know, rather bizarrely, if I find the quote, he um, he actually, again, on the same same theme, basically, he, um, if I can just give me give me a second to find the quote, but essentially he was saying that, you know, what Erdogan is saying, not that I'm here to defend Erdogan, but what Erdogan is basically saying is, yeah, he says, President Erdogan's rhetoric this week was deeply inappropriate. Words have consequences. Words have consequences. Hang on. That's for where, that's what everyone else is saying to the French, you know, you can't just say stuff. You can't just go out there. Um, and actually, he said, Erdogan really has fanned this hatred. These people know full well when they use such phrases where they will lead. Words have consequences. When you use such phrases, now, are you telling me the French don't at least partially acknowledge that by being so, by disgracing who, uh, you know, 1.5 billion people believe to be the most sacred creation created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, okay? All right? The most sacred creation. That that is such phrases that will lead to, that it's not going to lead to upset, it's not going to lead to anger, it's not going to lead to the demonstrations and the boycotts that people are talking about, that you can just do it without consequence. So they do acknowledge words have consequences, phrases of hatred will lead to undesirable, undesirable consequences, as they've said about Erdogan, right? Yet, at the same time, they're still insistent upon the fact that they want to be put at these cartoons, and they're not going to stand down. So this is something about this belief that when, when we have a, a, a set of principles and ideas that have been organized and created through, you know, through man's debate, with himself over a few hundred years, it's all an evolving process. You never quite get to perfection. And along the path you see all these contradictions expose themselves, leading to double standards and leaving, you know, leading to, to kind of what we're seeing in, the, in amongst French officials at the moment. So really, these are just some of the points I wanted to raise today. You know, just to recap, the first one really is you know, brothers and sisters, got to be very careful not to become desensitized to this. We've got to be very careful not to make this business as usual, because actually, in many ways, that's what people want. They want us to back down and they want us to have no hurt 
and actually accept that this is a good thing, you know, uh, and it's something which is entirely acceptable and we should just live with it. And particularly if we want to live in Europe, this is their customs. We have to just go with it. This desensitization is for the reasons I gave earlier, particularly around the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But we've got to constantly check ourselves. And how do I feel when these stories come out? Am I indifferent? Do I think, here we go again? What's the big deal? Or does my iman shake when I hear? So the thing I covered really was uh, lots of course of boycott, you know, coming from a great place, good sentiment. People are feeling that actually they they want to do something. You know, they don't want to just um, take it on the chin and move on. As I've said, you know, people have felt something and they've gone from feeling through to doing some action which they think through protest or boycott might yield some results. But the real impact is going to be at the level of a state who can actually make nations hurt, you know, through economic boycotts, through severing ties, through dismissing ambassadors, through denial of space. Everything the Saudis did when they felt humiliated that one of their, you know, prince, princesses, one amongst hundreds, uh, was uh, disgraced and uh, the story was made public and they all felt humiliated as a result of it. They went to town and it had an effect. And also, you know, Sultan Abdul Hamid, as I mentioned, did the same thing at the end of the 19th century. And like I said at the end, you know, um, Kufr exposes itself over time. It unwinds, it unravels. And we've seen the unraveling around us. And I think we should take some of those contradictions, some of those double standards. And when people say, you know, why, you, you know, sometimes you might be amongst non-Muslims, you might be in the office, probably not these days, but, you know, you might be talking virtually to colleagues or school or something. And they're like, man, well, why are you guys taking this stuff so seriously? You know, what's the big deal? You know, it's just a bit of fun. Come on, you know, take it on the chin. You, know, you kind of hear people just telling you to laugh it off. You know, well, okay, if that's the case, when we attack your queen, you know, or somebody attacks the queen, or attacks the French flag, somebody attacks the symbols of the republic, or attacks the monarchy, or attacks British values, I mean, you should take it on the, on the chin. Okay, it should be completely tame, but it's not, and we know it's not. You know, we've seen the responses this week. People have turned out, got angry. People have, you know, they have severed artists, you know, they have severed ties through this process by saying, no, 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 you know, we're not going to let you attack the symbols of the Republic, etc. So I think for us, very conscious about, and for us in the, using the hikmah and the wisdom and the, and the best ways to highlight these contradictions to those who might put these arguments forward. So after I've been shot, I would end it there. Okay, those are some basic points I, I wanted to share today. And I welcome to everybody's thoughts on this topic and to their contribution. Jazakallah. Jazakallah khairakmah. Um, we have a few questions from uh, the brothers and sisters. Uh, first of all, uh, Brother Jason Smith. People are saying that Muslim countries are weak. They're also saying that Muslim countries can't take serious action as states against France. People are also saying that even if some countries could do something about France, they wouldn't because they just don't care. Therefore, besides personal consumer boycotts, excellent speeches, and in the absence of the Khilafah state, what else can Muslims do against France? I mean, I think it's a very good question. And yeah, we're not really expecting, you know, uh, all of these countries something effective, even though they can if they wanted to. And Erdogan, he can make these wonderful speeches 
um but yeah i don't see the kind of translation of that into doing something meaningful so actually where it leads is the fact that putting our hope in these current rulers to do something and stand up for us is probably quite naive um and to the question you know what can we do i think the brother summed it up you know in the absence of a uh, of a, a muslim uh, islamic rule is there to defend the honor and values and sacred symbols of Islam, in amongst other things. That's not the sole purpose of that. The state is there to fix many of our economic woes. It's there to fix our broken political system. It's there to give people rights that have been taken away from them, Muslims and non-Muslims. You know, it's there to, to you know, address things like poverty. The, the, the Islamic rule and the, the system is, is there to do all of that. And also part of it is when the sacred symbols of Islam are attacked, to do something about it and not to take it lying down. And, uh, you know, in the absence of that particular rule, the best we can do really, yeah, maybe some individual boycott. We try to raise our voice and present the arguments. And we might not necessarily see governments bending to that. And they might do so on a temporary basis. I remember the Danish cartoons, there was a bit of a boycott it did have a temporary impact, you know, but everything went back to business as usual after that, you know, when the, the emotions died down. So, you know, we can't do nothing. Something may come of it. However, let's kind of get real. Let's be, um, let's be honest with ourselves that really in the absence of that state, we're only going to be able to go so far, okay? And what we can do in this phase, right, is, is present the arguments, the Muslims and non-Muslims, make them understand where we're coming from, build appreciation of Islam and an understanding of what this war is going to do. Um, and that's something we can do and we should do proactively, we should do it, we should be driven in doing that um, uh, to amplify the voice. In terms of real impact, it's going to really require you know, somebody like a Sultan of the Hamid II, somebody who's going to take that decisive action. And you know, people like to construe that comment in lots of different ways. We found that sometimes, you know, the way he managed that situation through diplomacy, through just making the point, okay? Yeah, backed with some threats, but people understood that this is something that we need to stop. Uh, similarly, you know, there are many options open to us at the state level to, to uh, prevent such things happening again. Zafra, care for that one. Uh, Brother Nizal asks, uh, there's no free press in the West. The press is selective in its coverage of anything and has for decades suppressed info that highlights political injustice of its own governments and militaries. Where is the freedom of expression here? Many communities are defended behind red lines of political correctness, except the Muslims. Yeah, I mean, that's completely right. And it goes to what, you know, I hinted at in the presentation, which is basically, you know, exactly the point about the, the wrinkles. I, 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 do you get my point about wrinkles? The kind of illogic, the contradictions in that way of life, which is freedom of expression can never exist, has never existed, undesirable. In the way they're describing, it's undesirable. You know, the, the, the whole undesirable is very, actually a very mellow way of saying it. It's peaceful, actually, when people um, feel that, you know, people's lives, people's sacred symbols, people's 
loved ones are, are fair game. You know, if you were to, you know, attack, as I say, the queen in this country and disgrace her through pictures and through cartoons, how do you think the British public would take that? Do you think, would they say, Alfred, no, it's fine. You know, if you were to attack, you know, people who are laying down their lives for this country on the front line and you were to uh, disgrace them and to discredit them and to humiliate them in these kinds of common ways, do you think that would be accepted and oh, it's all fair game? Issue here is that in the West, it's, it, this is not neutral country. They had a, a very difficult, bloody contest with religion and specifically Christianity. Yeah. Christianity had held back Europe for a long time. It had held it back because in Christianity, you know, certain types of knowledge were unacceptable. Everything had to be commissioned through the church. Everything had to be rubber stamped by the church. The church held Europe back. And when people be actually, well, that's the case, they rose up against the church. A long story, why that kicked off, who kicked it off. And he had a, a bitter contest. And what that led to really was putting the church into a corner of society, putting the church, the church into a small box and putting it into one corner of society. Keep out of the way. OK. And in order to do that, many tools were used. OK. The ability to speak out against the church was critical in trying to get the church to uh, take up a, a small corner of the room. And. That was, you know, as they say, the, the kind of particular cartoons and all the rest of it. So it was a, a particular tool used in a particular situation to try and prevent the church from taking over the political uh, political life, which it held back for a long time. It's a very specific, unusual European thing. So the rest of the world, this is bizarre. And not just Muslims. Okay, People around the world, when they see that people are calling for the sanctity of humiliation of other people, right? And and the right to disgrace people. It just sounds unusual. It just sounds bizarre. But from a Eurocentric perspective, it was part of their history because they needed that to put the church to one side, okay? But it's not a universal truth. It's not a universal right. It's not something you, you know, perpetuate in the way you're doing now um, you know, outside of that political struggle that you endured against the church, but it's become a right unto itself. And so they have a bias against religion. And we all know Europe has a particular bias against Islam. And I say this because, not because it's a Christianity Islam thing, it's because, you know, we have seen since the time of, you know, many centuries, you know, running up to the dismantlement of the Ottoman state, that actually, you know, keeping Islam in a box and keeping Muslims in a box because, you know, previously the Islamic world was essentially the rulers of the world. They led everything from intellectual discovery, scientific discovery, and they were an intellectual and a political force. And that is not in the interest of certain economic powers today. And therefore, there is a particular bias against something which shows the prospect of threatening how things are currently done in the world today, the current world order. And that's unacceptable. So any opportunity to oppress that trend, particularly over and above religion generally, seeing we've seen before us. Uh, we have a few more questions. Um, Brother Muhammad says, 
people say that France is a known secular country that believes in freedom. It has up to 7 million Muslims who have been living in France freely. Macron is actually protecting the Muslims from the likes of Le Pen and the right wing. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard the argument, but I don't get it. I don't think it's right. Uh, it's a bit like the argument people use in this country when they say, ah, Muslims, you need to calm down, otherwise the far right are coming after you. It's a way to it's a way to tell us to be quiet and sit down else, you know, we you know, we can't be responsible if the far right come after you. This kind of arguments and nonsense. Now the situation of Muslims in France is not good, you know? So when we talk about seven million Muslims living in freedom, that is a that's a nonsense. Because the reality is if you look at the situation of most Muslims in France, um they lack economic opportunities, discriminated in the workplace. How many reports have come out about how People of Algerian, North African descent, primarily Muslims, you know, from Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, are really locked out of society. They live in areas which are on the outskirts, away from the affluent areas of Paris. They live in towns which are far away and they're kept together. And they even have names for these kind of like Muslim ghettos outside of Paris. So the reality is Muslims are effectively locked out of society. And the only way that you can gain something in that society is to completely shed your heritage, your history, where you came from, and to become French. And uh, and that's not like a conspiracy. The French themselves will say that. They want you to cut your heritage. They want you to become French. French, not just in terms of conceptually uh, pro-secular, liberal, public person, but somebody who is in their manners and in their culture and in their sophistication, if they call it. French also, culturally French. And you won't be accepted. Unless you become that. So you have to shed everything. So this is the forced assimilation program that France has in place. Muslims, rightfully so, cannot buy into that. How can a Muslim be told, you know, everything about your deen you need to, like, throw away and you need to become a, a, a foreigner, a complete new person with a new culture, language, heritage? It's not possible. So because of this conflict, Muslims are essentially locked out from society. Added to that, the French were brutal in North Africa. I mean, we don't have time to go into it today, but French in Algeria, in, in these places, they were brutal. I mean, millions of people were killed at the hands of the French. They were humiliated in the most disgraceful ways. Women were humiliated by the French. And this is, again, go. you don't believe me, you don't even have to go, just go to Wikipedia if you don't want to go to any kind of scholarly resource on this, check it out. It is, and so people from those conflict zones came to France in search of economic, not even prosperity, survival. You think they can, you think they can forget what the French did to those countries? That brutality, that massacring, they were call a spade a spade. So it's quite easy, you know, for Macron to try and make out the French Hands are clear. No blood on our hands. You know, the Lebanese saying French come back better than it is was now. Really, you want the French to come, but you really you want the French to be involved in the Muslim world. Really, you want to see what the French have created for Muslims in France. So I think we have to be very careful. And the argument that the far right are coming after you, this is just a way to beat us in, into submission. It's a way to beat us into submission. Okay. And um, 
I'll leave it for now, but there's even commentary about how some of these promoted in order to create this dichotomy. So I think we should be very, very careful not to buy into this argument and, and to buy in. You know, uh, the, the rise of the Europe, not just in France, there's many reasons why it's kicked off anti-immigration, the reason why we've got to this point. So I think, you know, Muslims shouldn't curtail their Islam because they fear that somebody might be disappointed with it because um, next question is from brother Abdullah what is the duty of a Muslim when the Prophet is attacked is attacking civilians allowed or encouraged how do we control the anger of Muslims from angry responses etc doesn't this make Islam and Muslims look bad I've kind of hinted it in my earlier introduction. You know, Muslims don't act out of anger. We get we get angry, of course. This is just like you would get angry if somebody insulted your mother. You know, would you not get angry? Somebody insulted your father, your daughter, your son, your wife, your sister. I mean, Muslim, non-Muslim, you know, this somebody does that, it's going to make your blood boil. So anger is a completely normal feeling when something of great sanctity is ridiculed like this. However, Muslims do not respond according to their anger. They don't just say, well, I'm going to do anything I want now. I'm angry. So that's it. I'm just going to do whatever I feel to prevent that frustration. This is not the Islamic way. It's the Sharia came specifically to guide our response to things. Okay, this is quite important thing for us to bear in mind. And, you know, Whilst individuals will raise their voice, okay, they will, um, you know, raise their voice and actually protest against this and do individual actions. The real responsibility, okay, to take decisive action to defend the Prophet is on the ruler of the Islamic world, is upon the Khalifa, okay? And random acts of violence, particularly, you know, against this is not, I think, sanctioned by Islam, okay? And what you know, again, again, I'll probably repeat, I don't want to repeat. I think we have to bear that in mind because, you know, one of the big things that happened when the Khilafah was demolished, and we have to take note of this, when the Khilafah was here, regardless of how weak, it was able to determine and declare when there was a conflict and when there wasn't a conflict. This is one of the powers of the Khalifa. When that went, and even non-Muslims, you know, I... Non-Muslims have written about this, okay? That when that central authority disappeared, this topic of jihad fell into everybody's hands. Anybody could declare it when they wanted to. Anybody could do it. And this has caused some of the problems that we have today. That we don't have somebody in control of this topic, in control of this action, following the to it. It's up to every individual to do what they want. This is not, this is not how Islam prescribed that you know these things will be responded to or this kind of action will be taken. It's not there to be decentralized. And you know now any person can say, oh, you know, I speak for Muslim. I'm gonna, uh, uh, you know, I think this. Yeah, this is not really, you know, in the absence of the central authority. This is what we've end, ended up with, and it's caused a complete mess, and it's caused many, you know, people to manipulate the situation. You know, people manipulate the situation advantage of the fact there's actually nobody who can stop them saying these things and doing these things you know whether it's kind of 
external hands or whether it's just confused individuals in this mess because of that so we go back to the topic needing a khalifa who would take certain actions to do it okay and uh follow the state-to-state interaction order to bring this to the right remedy okay very important i think muslims don't just need you uh i think you know particularly the youth you know that it's uh, very important for them to really gain knowledge about what does islam tell us to do in these situations what is the right course of action and you know waiting for a khalifa feels frustrating it's like now nah, it's too long it's going to take too long i want to do something now however you know that should just make a khalifa say it comes closer and comes sooner not for us to go off and do something else right uh, which islam doesn't sanction so i think we have to be careful here and uh, we need to be guided by islam we need to be guided by the sharia and not allow ourselves to be to fall prey to knee-jerk or to people who are sometimes trying to stop the situation. Akmal, if I may, um, we spoke some, some time back um, about terrorism uh, in the world, and um, we were looking to see uh, who are the real terrorists in the world, and uh, um, various surveys were done, and it was found that uh, the number one in terms of world terrorism were white supremacist groups. And uh, number two, um, surprisingly, was uh, uh, animal rights activists. Um, yet it, Islam and the Muslims uh, seem to get most of the uh, media coverage. And there's also a question about some of these attacks in people's minds as well, uh, especially in light of um, false flag attacks, uh, political gain during the time of elections, um, I was talking to a French uh, uh, citizen the other day, and they mentioned to me, well, uh, you know, Macron's elections uh, in France are coming up soon as well. Um, so, so sometimes these particular events don't look to be random. They seem to have some sort of a uh, political agenda behind them. Um, what do you say about that? I mean, I'll say two things. The first one is are being singled out and we've got to ask why because as you say you know countless studies have shown that if you really want to focus in on who's doing the violence you know <clears throat> it, there is all sorts of a very mixed picture as you say far right um we don't really hear about those um they kind of get a very different level of media attention when they happen um you know and there's been various studies i remember one study a few years ago uh, i think his name is professor robert pape he did an anal- analysis of all the suicide, he built a database of suicides in the last 30 years, and he found that the number one were the, the Tamil Tigers or something. I think they came top, basically, in the course of 30 years rather than a blip in time. Um, and he did some analysis to why people do this, and it had very little to do with the stuff that we're told it's to do with, you know, about Islam and all of these things. It's often to do with, um, you know, a sense of, all sorts of things, loss and you know frustration, and people not guided. You know, obviously some of those particular movements they may be open to doing acts which Islam doesn't permit. But anyway, the, the why? Because we know that the narrative around Islam is the fact that you know if there was a contender, I mean, there are many contenders to Western supremacy at the moment. We see China to some extent beginning to become more and more emboldened, and we see a big shift towards dealing with China in the West. Um, but also Islam is a latent potential. And I think that is not something which uh, is 
has gone unnoticed. Um, the trend towards greater uh, Islam amongst Muslims calls for political uh, Islamic rule amongst Muslims. These things have not gone unnoticed. Um, and clearly, you know, I remember about 10 years ago, this whole thing about democracy over stability, this was the kind of Greater Middle East Initiative, the mantra of Condoleezza Rice, you know, we prefer stability, strong men for too long, we're going for democracy now. People turned around to them and said, look, if you were to give elections in the Muslim world, most people would vote in people you don't like, they'd vote in Islamic leaders, <laughs> yeah? That's because that's where the Muslim world is. So potential threat to the West. And whilst they try to depict it as a violent threat, they try to depict it as a medieval threat, they try to depict it as a anti-modern threat, all these things they try to do. The reality is that this system, as I'm here, is going to fix the problems of the Muslim world. It's going to fix them according to principles which are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is not a war on the world. This is just the narrative that they like to create so that people are afraid of that thing. Why? Because it was around for a long time. It was around for nearly 1300 years, okay, with, you know, the solutions it implemented, you know, lack of civil war within that state, degree of stability, as I said, leading the major trends in the world. That's what it was, not kind of what's been depicted, but it is a potential threat because what that Islamic rule will do, it will sever certain, it will stop the bleed it will stop the money bleed. It will stop the resources bleed. It will stop the control of our countries. It will stop the playboy princes in our countries. Yeah, it's going to stop all of that. People are going to lose out. And because of that, you know, they need to shut it down. They need to stop it. And I think that's the context in which the Muslim narrative, the Islamic narrative, is always given heightened attention because people are doing worse, um, but they are not getting that coverage. So I think, you know, of course it does. But Muslims, I think we should realize where it's coming from and why it's happening. And to some extent, that gives us a degree of confidence to say, okay, so they, they detect the fact that Islam is going to change. It's going to change how things are done. It's going to shake things up. That's a good thing. Because whoever said the world as it stands today is a great place to be in. You know, I know the people who are winning in the world today, the ones who've sucked up all the wealth, they are never going to let it go because they're doing so well out of it. What about the masses? What about half the world's population who, uh, you know, the, the famous Oxfam stat about, you know, a busload of billionaires equals 50% of the world in terms of net wealth. You know, all the other stats about 50% of the world produces wasted and how supermarkets have to throw food away because if they don't, it will affect the price of their foods. So they're trying to control production. You know, we've heard all of these. This is not a great You know, look at what we're going through now. With COVID, what a disaster, you know? What a disaster in terms of unemployment, in terms of situation, because they've got no deen, they've got no way of life. They got they were isolated, they were living the individual lives. Now they're indoors on their own. You know, mental health is going to pop, basically. You know, what kind of a world are we living in? So the fact Islam's going to kind of shake it up, the guys are going to lose out. They're making a noise and they're going to try and shut it down. But for the, the suffering masses, Muslim and non-Muslim, okay, it's going to bring about and give people their rights back. It's going to bring the stability back. It's going to bring back the economic resolutions, the political account. All these things are coming back. So 
Well, that should give us a bit of hope to say, just because they say it's something to be worried about. Well, actually, who are they? Who are they? Who are saying that we should be worried about it? They should be worried about it. Sure, the elite should, um, but not those who are going to to humanity and even at the time of the Prophet a handful of Quraysh they fought this tooth and nail because they knew they were going to lose out they fought it to the last minute and then they had to give in they had to give in and fought tooth and nail they used every every tactic to try and shut the Prophet down they couldn't do it in fact you know the opposite happened they had to so you know, this is our point of view. Our point of view is the fact that they are singling us out. We know why. And actually, maybe it says something about the fact they actually fear that we're going to change the way they run things in the world today. And that is no bad thing. Um, we have a further question from Brother Frederick Jonathan. Um, he asks, Islam encourages criticism of ideas and rigorous debate over scientific, philosophical and political ideas. At the same time, it mandates the responsible speech and prevents malicious and harmful speech. This way, we get the best of both worlds and we are able to avoid the excesses of the Western views on speech, which leads to hatred, discord and bullying of minorities. Yeah, a brilliant point. And, you know, look at our history. Look at how Muslims debated with uh, people. You know, they didn't just try to, and this is a problem with interfaith nowadays, they didn't just try and say, oh, no, we're kind of similar, aren't we? You know, no, yeah, we, we kind of have similar prophets and, you know, we come from a similar part of the world. Our languages are quite similar. Actually, we're, not, we're quite similar people. We didn't follow that path. We were intellectually honest. We don't believe in idol worship. We don't believe in the Trinity, okay? We don't believe in your ideology of communism. These things, And we will intellectually discuss it and debate it. Okay, and we'll do so in a respectful way. Because what did humiliation ever achieve? What did disgrace ever achieve? If I was to disgrace somebody on this call and say something about their mother, now you're not going to get into an intellectual, rational discussion to say, mm, you might have a point there. And it's going to be an emotional reaction. So what did that ever serve? Whereas Muslims, even at the time of the Prophet, you know, when the Christians from Najran asked him questions about, uh, about the hymn and about the book and the and, uh, about Islam, okay? How did the Prophet ﷺ address him? You know, when uh, Tawfel bin Amr al-Dawsi, you know, he was told, nah, this guy's a crazy guy, okay? And he came into Makkah, he sat down with the Prophet ﷺ, he opened his mind, he heard the words. The Prophet didn't start saying, oh, those guys, Quraysh guys, forget them, you know, they tell you not to listen to me, don't listen to them. He didn't get into that, he just said, listen to what I have to say. It's intellectual argument, okay? This is our way. And we are also advised not to insult other people, not to insult them because they may insult Islam. You know, this is not our our way of discussing. It's the the ayah about the hikmah, you know, using the, the, the best ways. Why the best ways? Because we want people to take on this message. We don't want people to reject it because of the way we spoke to them or our, our articulation or the... the we don't want people to use these as excuses to turn away. We want to use the best way. So what we are talking about is the ideas themselves. And I'd even say sometimes, you know, some Muslims, they they kind of, they cry Islamophobia when Muslims sometimes ask them questions. 
you know, if somebody is being disgraceful, yeah, Islamophobia, we, we don't want that. We don't want you to just, you know, be... If somebody asks you a question, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in angels? Why do you believe in this Prophet? Why do you believe in this Quran? Why do you say that uh, men can marry four wives, yeah, but not vice versa? Why, why, why? If somebody asks you these questions, you know, address them, deal with them, because somebody might have a genuine question. And perhaps your answer to that, if done in the best way, in the thoughtful way, will attract them and win. Assume every time somebody asks you a question is because they want to dig at you. When the leaders do it, always the case because they have a plan, right? As I said earlier about shutting Islam, sometimes individuals they just want to know. So engage in the intellectual discussion, okay? And um, and use the best arguments uh, in order to present this rational truth of Islam, okay? And uh, you know they like to put people on TV. Uh, who look like these crazed guys, you know, um, you know, or or they like to try and make out Muslims like, like I say, crazy people who've got like wild eyes and funny hair, and they 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 wear these Middle Eastern clothes, and they they've got a twig in their mouth, and they they all look a bit bizarre. These these weird guys coming, you know, these strange characters coming over. They like to depict us in way, they put up a smoke screen. But when you talk to people. And you are able to explain what Islam stands for. You find people. Oh, listen, I mean, at the individual level, you know, amongst, you know, the people in society, common people. So, this is our way, right? This is our way. And even when the Islamic State deals with the West, it's not. It's there to. It's in. It's. We're trying to present our message to them in the most effective way. We are not. That's the aim of our relationship between other countries. They talk about Islam was spread by the sword, it's all about violence. Nothing to do with that. I'm dragging here slightly, but I will point out that, you know, even Islam expanded so quickly because we we actually took the oppression away, we appealed to people's minds. And this is now well documented even by Western So yeah, sorry. Comment on your comment, but very, very well stated. Exactly. Exactly. Um we have a second question from Muhammad. He says, what do we say to those non-Muslims that say by trying to defend the Prophet, you are the apologist for the beheadings, you need to come out and condemn the attacks? Yeah, I mean, that's just a false, that's a false construct, isn't it? I defend the Prophet, وسلم, and somehow I defend the guys that are beheading. Like, how did the two come together? How did the one guy's gone and killed an innocent civilian and one person's gone and attacked the Prophet how is it an apology for that? How is it an apology? It's just it's emotional. It's an emotional reaction. And it's said by people, if I be quite for those arguments, they already have a degree of hatred against Islam. They have a de- they detest Islam. Yeah? Those who form the leaders those constructs, those individuals who already made up their mind make those constructs. So Engage in that discussion if you feel it's going to go somewhere. But sometimes it's irrational. And maybe that's the first thing to say. So explain to me how the two things are connected. You know, it's like somebody who goes and defends the queen by beheading somebody, right? Now, would you say that that person, therefore the queen is not, you know, you shouldn't defend the queen? 
Because if you say you should defend the Queen, you are defending beheadings. I mean, how is that rational? One guy decided to do one action, and there's a topic about the sanctity of something which is sacred to particular people. So let's not kind of bring these nonsense arguments together. I mean, don't always feel you have to answer the question straight away. Sometimes a question is a nonsense. Sometimes a question messy stuff. Call it out and say, look, I, I don't even understand what, what, what you're asking. What does that even mean? Yeah, I'm not sure I fully, like, how did you connect the two together? Uh, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it's a bit like the old arguments they used to use. They used to say, ah, you know, if you call for Islamic rule, you are kind of giving support to terrorists because who go around bombing stuff. You know, conveyor belt, even this, you end up doing that later. Ideas are ideas, actions are actions, okay? I can say I defend the Prophet ﷺ through a particular way, which Islam is a I can also say I defend the Prophet ﷺ in a way Islam has not sanctioned. That's about the means and the methods. It's not about the goal. The goal is still... But somebody has de decided that they want to follow a particular course, which Islam is not sanctioned. So don't really give up to the... Um, to some of these uh, these made up uh, made up arguments. Jazakallah, uh, Um I just wanted to mention that you mentioned the issue of uh, some fallacies there in terms of the argumentation, how people use arguments. Um, something useful maybe for the brothers and sisters, uh, if you type in uh, logical fallacies on the uh, Google images, you'll find a nice poster which actually talks about uh, various argumentative techniques that people use in order to entrap people and in order to uh, win their argument for the sake of winning the argument, rather than actually discussing from a rational perspective. Um, it's interesting to read, it's very short sort of points about uh, uh, straw man arguments and a different way that people argue. And you can see how in the media and how politicians actually use these techniques uh, in order for them to uh, further their agenda, um, as, to oppose, as opposed to us as Muslims, uh, we're interested in the truth, we're not interested in fallacies. Uh, so inshallah, it's worthwhile looking, having a look if you get a chance. Um, next question is from Brother Ridwan Abu Mariam. Um, he says, I was listening to the radio earlier today and the host asked the guest why he thought the West should be allowed and indeed needed to display the cartoons. The guest, a young man, said, we can never go back to the Dark Ages. We cannot ever go back to the time when we were not allowed to question, which meant we weren't allowed to think, which meant we couldn't progress. We cannot ever go back to having a group of people, the clergy, who cannot be questioned and must be obeyed. Question. This young man uh, never lived through the Dark Ages and yet is so convinced about his position. How does that happen? And can Muslims present Islam in that unthinking, unquestioning clergy manner? Yeah, you know, it does sound like the guy is living 300 He's still fighting those battles, yeah? World's moved on. <clears throat> he still fears that we're going to go back to that, you know? And therefore, we must put this cartoon up if we don't do it. That's not answering the questions. They ask them, why do you think they have to put it up? Not, you know, why did you feel the need to create that in the first place? That's the question. Not, you know, should we stop it now that it's out there? Why somebody feel they had to put that cartoon? Because it had because the clergy was taking over again after three hundred years. Is that what is that why they have to create those, or was it just mischievous fun? That actually, you know what, we're going to have a go. 
we're going to see how we can press more. So we're going to see, you know, how they kind of react to these. You know, was it a bit of fun? I'm not saying it is, but, you know, it's not enough. Question is, why did somebody feel the need to do that? Somebody had to think of an idea, get a pen and draw it. What was the thought in their head that I need to draw this cartoon? I'd love to know. We may never find out, but I, I'm guessing it's got nothing to do with the clergy coming back and uh, taking over France, or the Muslim, or, or you know, the imams taking over France. A nonsense. It's a complete nonsense argument. But in the West, that your history is we fought against the church and to to win our freedoms, and you know we're not going to let those freedoms go. Uh, so we need to keep perpetuating this nonsense. Islamic approach is completely different. Like I said earlier, you know, we are happy for anybody to challenge any of our beliefs. We are happy for anybody to debate any of our beliefs. We are happy. Most religions said that. Let, let me give you a picture, and this is why you know Eurocentricness I talked about earlier. In the in the West, Western Europe, the Church had the monopoly of knowledge. Firstly, they were the only ones the clergy could read or write. Nobody else could. All knowledge, any topic. Mark, we lost your sound very briefly there. Mark, if you can hear me, we've lost your sound. Brothers and sisters, you can bear with us. I think we're having some bandwidth or internet issue here. Inshallah, we'll come back with Akmal at any moment, Inshallah. Can you, can you hear me, yeah? Uh, yeah, you've come back now, yeah. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, you can hear me, everyone, yeah? Well, actually, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that. You can hear me, stop. Uh, yeah, Still hear me, yeah? Uh, we can hear you, yeah. Uh, just your pictures. Okay, so... Oh... All I was saying, so, so I mean, what I was saying was that, you know, this, uh, I think where I left it was to say, you know, it'd be we'd, great to understand why somebody decided that this cartoon had to be drawn. But the, the issue with Islam is, look, we invite debate, we invite people to challenge our beliefs, we are ready to discuss them intellectually with anyone, okay? And the difference with Islam and the Christian European experience where I said that in Europe, Christianity, the church had the monopoly. All knowledge had to go through the church. So, you know, the world is flat. Earth is the center of the universe. All these kind of crazy beliefs were were sanctioned by the church and you couldn't have the opposing view. Hence, they start to fight against the church. Say, oh, this is a nonsense. Give us a chance. Islam doesn't have that. Islam says, Islam didn't come to define the world. Islam came to tell you how to live in the world. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's guidance guides you on actions. It doesn't guide you on what you can see with your eyes. It doesn't tell you. It's, that's, what, that's why Allah gave you eyes and ears and hands and mouth and nose to sense the world and to form a picture. So scientific knowledge, knowledge of the natural sciences, knowledge of astronomy, of medicine, of mathematics, Islam leaves this to the human faculty. Okay, Islam leaves this to the human faculty and you can explore that. Go explore. And we did, and we made major leaps and bounds, okay? So what the West were restricted around, particularly around the development of knowledge and of science, etc., the church had a monopoly on. And also the church was running the political system in a closed shop way, 
which meant that nobody could ever change the situation. It had a view on the economy. There was no private property. It was a complete mess. So they revolted against it, right? So what I mean by that is we will take on debate and discussion. We don't have the problem that Christianity had about, you know, sanctioning knowledge about the world. Okay, Islam provides guidance on how to live in the world, and we can prove it's come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rationally, which means it's not a blind faith thing like Christianity was. Okay, so it's a completely different setup, completely different. Um, and that's the thing that they don't get. I know that's slightly, you know, quite a few points to consider there, but I think what we have to understand is that the West went through a very painful history, you know, and you know, when somebody goes through trauma, you know, I'm sure the doctors on the call here will tell us that, you know, the memory of trauma is kind of like hard to take away. It keeps coming back, it keeps giving you nightmares. It keeps popping into your head. It's a bit like that. The West went through a trauma and it keeps coming back, even though we've moved way on in a different world now. People still have that memory that see, seems to haunt them, that, you know, the, the mullahs are going to take over France or, you know, the clergy are coming back. So it's a nonsense argument. It's a nonsense argument. and I'm not just saying that, rationally ask yourself, when did you ever settle an argument by humiliating your opponent? I just, uh, you know, I've been in discussions where people have been humiliated. They just, uh, those discussions collapse. They just uh, fall apart. They don't actually go anywhere. So we, we are not part of this. We, one thing I will say, uh, and we are ready to engage intellectually with anyone you know, whether you're from the French Republic or the, the British parliamentary democracy, whether you're an atheist, a neoliberal, whatever it is, Muslims are confident that we, and we've done this through the ages, we did it with the Greeks and various others, willing to debate, well, not with the Greeks, but, you know, with their philosophy to some extent, uh, willing to engage with these topics. Um, I've, uh, brothers and sisters, I've just put a link on the Facebook site um, to uh, a campaign which the brothers started some time ago about uh, termed Our Prophet, Our Honour. And inshallah on there you can see some leaflets, etc. Uh, and a discussion of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu and uh, various comments from non-Muslims um, on their opinion of the Prophet Sallallahu And uh, inshallah something positive there as well. Lot, lots of non-Muslims from around the world from various uh, varying centuries uh, uh, over the years, have actually had uh, many positive things to say about the Prophet Sallallahu And um, I think, was it John Hart, was it, Akmal, who in 1971-72 uh, wrote the book about the 100 most influential people in the world and put the Prophet Sallallahu as number one? I think it was, I can't recall personally. Yeah, I, I recall something like that was uh, yeah. was put and, together. And uh, just in line with the, uh, your comment there, uh, John Hart actually had to put a, a specific... Uh, uh, preface in the book uh, to explain why to the Western audience that he'd put the Prophet Sallallahu as uh, the most influential uh, person in the world because he knew just as you explained very nicely about this whole issue of uh, the clergy and the uh, and the uh, way that they actually oppress the general people and um, so he had to actually explain to the Western audience um, yeah I mean uh, we've never had a clergy yeah we don't have this concept you know, this, you still see them today in the churches, you know, the hierarchy, very hierarchical. And, you know, you know, a lot of this didn't even come from Christianity. It was foreign infusions in, in Europe in particular that led to this. So they, 
they were at the top of society. Nobody, and you couldn't challenge it. You couldn't actually uh, change it because you were essentially born into your position. If you were born into a particular clergy, then you had a chance, a certain lineage, you could be king. But, you know, otherwise, you know, you, you're you born, you, you work the fields and you die. You know, you don't own anything. You just work for the on the church lands. I mean, that was life in, in Western Europe. And I encourage brothers to to actually understand where they're coming from, because it was painful. I mean, it's it was, why was it called the Dark Ages? It wasn't called the Dark Ages for no reason. It was a complete mess. It was, you cannot believe how backward the Western Europe were. And actually what triggered the change was the interaction with the Muslim world. That's what triggered, that's what got people thinking for a number of reasons. One, they came into direct contact with us and many of them came to our universities. Many of them spoke Arabic and they were like, their minds were open to all sorts of new stuff. And they were like, this is amazing. How comes we don't have this? And you know, you have P, you have nobility in Europe complaining that their daughters and their sons are coming back speaking Arabic, you know? Uh, that was one thing. Secondly, you know, they talk about the Renaissance. It was fueled primarily by the translation of Greek works um, into Arabic, which then came to Europe through Spain. And they came across their their old, you know, Roman and, and Greek culture and thoughts and ideas. And also military interaction, okay, which has created a certain resentment against the Muslim world, which is, you know, the conquest, the, the, the sieges of Vienna, etc. And also the fact Muslims came all the way up to Poitiers and all of these things. So the, the military interaction also led to a particular negative. But these things triggered that, look, hang on. We're going to be taken over by these guys. How comes we can't, we don't have any of this stuff? What's going on? And it got people thinking. The external stimulus got them thinking that, hang on, this cannot be the way. And it took them hundreds of years, a long time, to overcome those obstacles and to come up with broadly what they have now. Um, and, you know, in some extents, you know, we were reading a book yesterday uh, you know, a Muslim scholar from the 20th century described the West as a drunken man, left and right. You know, they're kind of like falling down the road. That's what they've been. They've they've gone from one extreme to the other extreme. They, they can't really find their way. But they got rid of that obstacle and they feel good about it. And they feel that was a hard struggle. We're not going back. But this, you know, this nonsense about humiliation as a route to progress is irrational. Maybe some of your philosophers did it and poked fun at the church sometime in the 18th century okay and it got a laugh and it took you uh one centimeter forward in amongst everything else going forward how can you now say that this is now so critical so sacred that we are going to um we're not going to give in even though it offends people even though it causes all sorts of animosity amongst human beings somehow this is right and you know we live in europe we hear these arguments every day when you outside of Europe and you hear this argument you think these guys are mad what are they going on about what are they talking about the right to humiliation what kind of nonsense is that it's just it's just bizarre you know but living in their little European bubble they think this is the this the best thing ever and everybody needs to learn it learn this principle and everybody needs needs to adopt the principle of the right to humiliation because that's the way I mean that would that would what would disintegrate if we were to adopt that Tomorrow, what do you say that things haven't really changed then? Because, I mean, um, just looking in the uh, framework of today, uh, okay. we see that uh, uh, we're told that we can uh, talk and debate and discuss. But yet, when you do debate and discuss uh, with these uh, 
politicians and these ideologues in, uh, say, for example, in this country. Um, for example, you're not allowed to talk about uh, the Jewish community. You know, uh, we saw um, uh, Corbyn uh, today being uh, chastised by his own party and uh, being suspended. Um, uh, you know, uh, if you mention uh, the Zionists or the Jews, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, uh, the tool of anti-Semitism comes out. Um, and even if you try to actually challenge the ideas of capitalism and secularism, uh, we see there's a huge backlash from these people. We had the McCarthyist days in America in the past. Um, and we've seen over the last uh, few decades that uh, if you try to actually challenge their way of thinking, um, they actually clamp down on you, you know, very dictatorial in their behavior. And um, isn't this just a continuation of that uh, uh, past hegemony that they had in the past, just in a different guise? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I'd agree with that. I mean, obviously, the the thing, there's two things you mentioned there. Obviously, you know, uh, the as you mentioned, the kind of restrictions on speech, and you know, even in Islam, we wouldn't, we want to in the Islamic state, you know, just start calling out people, you know, non-Muslim communities. This is, and and just denigrating them. It's not acceptable Islamically to be doing that, right? So. So we recognize there are limits to speech that, you know, there are limits to, when I say limits to speech, we say, generally speaking, you know, make a rational point and nobody's going to say anything to you, but don't do it in a way that's going to uh, cause offense and harm. You know, like in, in the way they talk about, we need to cause offense. We must cause offense. You know, if we're not causing offense, something wrong. Um, so, and you know, for example, Judaism, you know, famous article, I don't know how famous it is, but, you know, I came across some years ago about how, you know, a number of Jew, Jewish scholars talked about how Islam saved Judaism. Why? Because they were, they were disintegrating. They were dying under the Byzantines and the Persian conflict, and Islam came and saved them, it resurrected them, they let their unified language, etc. So Islam is very much a protection of minorities. I know that's a slightly different topic. And when you talk about right to criticism, the issue is this. The issue is, although there's an intellectual principle that says you can say whatever you want, and practically we know that's not true. Secondly, when interests are harmed through that process, then you see the shutters come down. You know, we know, for example, that in the recent half decade, decade, there's been this big push to not just obey the law of the land, but you need to promote British values. But so I can't really, so, and if I attack British values, if I say, well, you know, British colonialism was was pretty bad. You know, um, and and actually, symbols of the Queen and country and all of this was was a disaster for the world. And I attacked British history. That could land me uh, being labelled an extremist. Okay, that could result, and extremism as a label then essentially prohibits certain types of speech. So you can't say that those are going to put you in that box. Okay, and that box has co practical consequences in terms of what happens to that person. Right terms of state intervention and all the rest of it. So when when the powers that be, and I guess maybe that's the point you're making, that when there's a threat to those who are running things, okay, then they will react to shut down that opposition. And in this particular situation, even though there is a principle called free speech, if the government interests come under threat, if economic interests come under threat, you know, I think there was some story about how capitalism couldn't be argued against in class. I don't know how true or accurate that was, but I saw it floating around social media. They, they will start to actually say certain discussions are off limits. We can't have those discussions. We can't, uh, 
go down that road. And that's not completely unusual. I mean, the bottom line here is that, uh, as I say, there are there are limits to um, to what you should say to other people, uh, to the level of offence you cause, to disgracing people. There should be barriers against that kind of stuff because even practically it leads to breakdown of society. But anyway, to your point, what we're seeing is is the powers that be are going to uh, try to label any any intellectual opposition as being um, outside the pale, beyond the pale, and make it hard for people to to make the case. So that's why, to be honest with you, what we have to, be, as Muslims, be very focused on is, you know, we need to be focused on bringing back, you know, the state that's going to really take this from individual discussions to state-on-state -state discussions, yeah? So we can have those debates, have those discussions, fix the image, correct the media, challenge in a way that we can't do as individuals. And that's kind of where we're, we're very much lacking at the moment. Um, I think this follows on nicely from your point, um, your discussion there. Uh, Brother Frederick Jonathan, he says, we never had inquisitions killing her heretics, uh, witch burning, book burning. Muslims never put scientists like Galileo under house arrest either. All these happened in the West, so you can see why they cherish freedom so much. Muslims never had these, so we don't need freedom. Yeah, again, very well made point. And all those examples you highlight is... Um other tragedies that the West uh, experienced. And it's one of the reasons why secularism emerged, because they wanted a space which was outside of the jurisdiction of the church. Uh, you know, they wanted to create an intellectual space, a thought space, which was free from the church. And so that space was called the secular space. It was a, a space where anybody could get involved and, and think and do, etc. So they they try to concede that space from the church and say, look, give you know, we we need some space to ourselves to 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 actually uh think and accelerate. And I mean they call it freedom. It's freedom from the church. All of these are relative, yeah. It's free expression against the church, it's freedom of belief from the church. It's all of this is set in, in that context, really, right? And um whereas this may it's been made universal, it's like freedom of any belief and freedom to do any type of expression, freedom to do any type of insult. It's, it's generalized outside of the context in which it emerged, okay? And I think that's where it's fallen over. And that's where, you know, it, it's, it doesn't add up now. It doesn't add up, doesn't hang together. And all the contradictions I highlighted earlier, and they just, tip of the iceberg, you know, there's, um, you know, I, you know, I can't go to the politician and uh, say something nasty to them, you know? Um, Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we, I mean, the examples are endless. So, so the issue here is that now they're still holding on to principles which are not really valid. You know, things have moved on. You know, situation is different. And what they really need to be talking about now isn't holding on to a belief that they tried to use 300 years ago to free themselves from the church. What they need to be asking about now is what is the thought system we need to fix the economy? What's the thought system we need to engage people who don't care about politics? What's the thought system we need uh, to stop people, to stop the disintegration of society. You know, everybody's kind of atomized society. Everybody's on their own. Individualism's taken over. That's what they need to be thinking. Those are the thoughts they need now. Not, okay, I need to be able to cuss the church. Okay, maybe 300 years ago you found that useful. Hang on, wake up. Church is nowhere to be seen anymore. You need to fix these problems. Where are your ideas for that? That's, that's the missing bit. 
and that's where you know Muslims are able to come forward to say, no, 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 we have a series of ideas to address this, and you know, under Islam, technology, scientific development, not constrained by Islam at all. It's not constrained because this is about sense perception of the dunya of the world, okay. And then you might say, okay, what do I do? That's what Islam comes in to guide you in terms of action. But in terms of what's happening in front of you, that's why we are beings who are able to sense the world around us and to discover scientific and technological advancement. And we did, and we will. So we we are not in any way frightened or feel inferior when it comes to all these tech progress that we see or scientific progress, you know, from nanotech to biotech to whatever. None of this is, this is all game for Muslims. It's all very much, whereas for the West and the church, it wasn't, you know. You couldn't use experimentation to discover. You had to go and get it rubber stamped by the priest to say, yeah, you can believe in that or not. So that kind of thought control um, was was being preserved. So so this is Islam, and um, and that's what they need to, what I'm getting at, that's what they need to be thinking about. What These are the questions they need to be answering. The new battles, the battles of this age, not the old battles that have been buried, yeah? The battles of the time. How do we bring human beings together? How do we stop increasing ethnic, nationalistic division amongst people? How do we stop, you know, the oppression and the subjugation of people? How do, you know, all this kind of stuff. These are the, these are the big questions of the day, right? Tell us what you think about that. That's something we, we should be debating. Well, you started today's talk uh, by talking about how the uh, uh, Ummah has become desensitized. And Brother Manzur has a question for you. Uh, Salam, the problem we have is that in the future, Muslims are slowly becoming immune to the sort of issues or to these sort of issues. How do we instill love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa in the minds of the Muslims? You know, I'd suggest two things. Um, you know, one thing is that we are all, the West and the world we live in has become busy doing stuff, okay? Just busy doing stuff. I think that's the best way to describe it. Busy working, you know, chores, you know, DIY, I don't know, just making it up now, right? But you cannot go with this. People are just busy. They're just keeping themselves busy. And actually, when people stop being busy, they get worried because they have to, you know, during this lockdown, for example, people start to ask really deep questions. What am I doing? People lost their job. They sat at home, got nothing to do. The job was the purpose. What am I doing? It's like got really scary for people. Got, people got really worried because they would, you know, when they're busy, they're distracted. Life goes on. Great. So I would say, first thing is, as a Muslim, ask yourself what you're busy with. What are you busy with? You need to create some time. I need to create some time in our busy schedules where we dedicate some of that to our deen, okay? Because if you are just busy with the day-to-day, these things will come and go and you don't have the space to think about them or to worry about them or to give them the fair attention that they need. You're too busy. So that's the first thing. Each one of us has the same 24 hours a day, 24 hour a day. Each one of us has the same amount of time. We choose what we put in it. So we complain about time. What we should complain about is what we're filling with it. If we're working three jobs and a night shift, right, because we want a 10-bedroom house, then you're filling your life with that, okay? Isn't it? That's one extreme, for example, right? 
So let's look at our lives. Let's take five minutes, sit down. What do I do? What can I stop doing? What can I take out of my schedule to create some time? Maybe do some superfluous stuff. Maybe you, you, you're into this Netflix box set, I don't know, whatever, right? Or series, which, you know what? We could just kill it. It's worth the time. Buy an hour back a day. Now, in that hour or time, whatever it is, okay, we should spend that time getting closer to Islam. And getting closer to Islam firstly involves understanding what's happening around us, you know, what's going on around the Muslim world. Take some focused time on that. Be connected with it. It's your ummah, my ummah. They're going through suffering. What is going on? Educate yourself on that. On the specific question about the process of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I would say that you cannot love somebody unless you know them. Yeah? And, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, I don't know who's listening to this, but many of us have gone through rational proof of God and we are convinced Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rationally, the key operative word, is the creator of the universe. But rationality will only tell you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator of the universe, that he made all of this around us. And that's it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to us his names. He's revealed to us his attributes. And they're not names like my name or Aftab's name, just a label, which may or may not have any meaning. You know, my name's Akmal. Yeah, it's a superlative of the, the term complete. Okay. Okay, maybe I'm complete, maybe I'm not complete. I don't know if it really reflects who I am, right? But it's just the name my parents gave me, just the label. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's names are not like that. They actually describe how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works. How does he run this universe? How does he organize it? How does he look after us? How does he listen to us? It actually, that's what they call the asma wa sifat, the, the names and the attributes. Attributes meaning they're descriptions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, you know, and we can't really even, you know, fully understand these because they are, they are descriptions of something which is beyond time and space. So we can only grasp a small amount, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given some information. When we start to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how he runs his affairs, how he runs the universe, how he is looking out for us, how he's, you know, all the attributes, he's here to answer our Dua, he's here to forgive us. He's here to, you know, guide us. He's here to show us the light. You know, he's beginning to explain. You become automatically, you start to get close because you start to know him. It's like if somebody says, this person is, uh, you know, this person is my father. Okay, but doesn't know anything about them. Just father. Okay, there's a relationship of love because father always loved. But if they said this person's kind and they're generous and they listen and they're attentive, and they put others first, you build a certain love towards that person. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by knowing even some and, and taking time to uh, understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is without doubt, it is the best knowledge because it will clarify life and how things are organized and how the universe and our lives are being run. And it will put us at great ease to understand how it's all being done. So that's the first thing. Do that constantly. Buy some time. Understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. How can you love Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam unless you know? Okay, how did he treat his daughter? How did he treat his wives? How did he treat his guests? You know? How did he treat the young? How did he treat the old? 
How did he treat non-Muslims? How did he treat the person who abused him? You know, by starting to understand the Prophet ﷺ, you start to understand the man, you start to get close to him, you start to want to emulate him. You start to become wowed by this amazing human being. Okay? And that can only happen is, is if you start to learn about the Prophet ﷺ. Incredible Nabi Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to guide us. And the way he responded to certain situations is just incredible. It is incredible the way he dealt with people, the way he managed people, the way he spoke to them. And there's all these little stories you hear all the time that I hear all the time and you think, subhanAllah, it's just incredible. I want to know about this person much more. And I've talked to your point about John Hart and, you know, there's another book out there by a guy called Adair who talks about the leadership of the process. You know, they start to read about this. They're wowed by it. They're like, this is incredible. This is incredible that we have a person like this who walks the earth. So, for us not to become desensitized and to build love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet and even the Sahaba and that generation, we have to know it. Not just theoretical, yeah, yeah, they're the best generation because they came first. Yeah, because he's the messenger of Allah and yes, that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Actually read what we have been given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so we may know these people and that will bring us closer to them. And then when they are attacked, we are rationally hurt. That how can you attack the most, the, the greatest creation? But we are also hurt because we know something about the Prophet And we think, how could you do this to it? How could you ever dare say something like this? And, you know, there are books about the Prophet Muqadi Iyad's book, Ashifa, is full of just amazing uh, narrations of the Prophet and also narrations about our duty, you know, our duty Islamically to defend his honor. Okay, that is a duty in Islam. It's not a light matter. Okay, I know it, the Christians have given up on their prophets and they allow attacks and they sometimes join in as well. They make fun of God. Yeah, <clears throat> the comedies are about their sacred symbols. I don't know. Those guys have completely lost their way. For Islam, this is... This this is a red line. And we shouldn't just feel it in our hearts. We should follow the Islamic course to fix that situation and to make sure that uh, people recognize that. This is, no, this is not a joke. You know, it's not a joke for us at all. Uh, and we don't say that from a position of inferiority or begging, please. We are saying this is the greatest creation. And if you don't believe us, we'll debate it with you. We'll show you why he's the greatest creation. Why he was he, he was given the Quran and this book cannot be matched. We will show you, yeah? So I would suggest that. Find a bit, that's practical. Find a bit of time. Maybe find one thing you can kill in your in your schedule. Unnecessary thing. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's just a ritual that you're doing. You forgot you're doing it. Stop it, okay? Um, and fill it. Fill it with awareness with the ummah and of your, your messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and your creator and I think they they are good starting points to build that that connection and that love Jazakallah Khair I think that's a good point for us to end the discussion today unfortunately we've run out of time um, Jazakallah Khair brothers and sisters for attending and Jazakallah Khair for your comments and your questions and uh, Jazakallah Khair to you as well Mom, um, for your efforts and uh, uh, your uh, guidance there uh, Inshallah was there anything you wanted to end on in particular or no, I think, Alhamdulillah, I think that's um, 
more than enough from me. You probably heard enough from me. Um, <laughs> like I said, it was more kind of casual, just sharing some thoughts and ideas on this topic. Um, but very good points made by the brothers and sisters and, you know, good questions. I mean, maybe just the thing to leave it here with is, is on this desensitization point. You know, sometimes Muslims think, you know, where do I look? You know, on, on one side, there's a there's a war going on here. On the other side, there's an attack on the Prophet going on. On the other hand, you know, you know, we have, uh, you know, liberalization of, of Makkah and Medina, our sacred places are, are you know, going to be a few miles away from nightclubs, you know. And then you, you've got, you know, things happening in Egypt and riots. And you like, like, where do I look? Where do I look? Where do I start? Which one do I pick? You know, Muslims in Syria, situations now better. I mean, Kashmir, I mean, you'd have heard this many times, but we should never lose hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We should believe that the solution that he gave us to this, we need to do our bit. You know, some people become disheartened and say, ah, it's too hard, it's far. We've been going at it for too long and they kind of um, can't lose hope. Okay, and losing hope is a very dangerous thing because when you lose hope, okay, then basically things come to an end. Action comes to an end. Desire comes to an end. And a Muslim lives between, as we know, the wings of hope and fear. Fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and hope that he's going to help and save us. So never despair, but do your bit. We need to do our bit. We need to be part of this struggle. Okay? We need to be part of this struggle. We need to be part of the cause that's going to bring back something that is going to shake up the world in a good way, in a way that it needs to be shaken up. And we're not just the ones saying things need shaken up. Everybody's pulling the hair out to figure out what do we do now? You know, where do we go next with uh, with what we have created? It feels like of a, a house of cards. You know, you pull the wrong one out, it's all going to come tumbling down. Everybody's kind of on eggshells, walking on eggshells. What's the next crisis? This is not the way. This is not the way to help humanity or to live. This is going to cause, and it already has caused mass war, mass destruction. So it needs a so don't be disheartened, and there is a unifying solution to this. We focus on that one thing, it will put all these things in their proper places. And it's a generational struggle, but we need to be part of that. We don't want to be left out. At no point us coming and uh, joining the victory when it's happened, we weren't contributing to it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually describes those people, you know, in Surah Al-Hadid as, you know, they are of a lower rank. Those who join the struggle when it is needed are of a higher rank than those who come when the victory has been secured. We want to be part of this when the work is needed and being done, not when uh, the dust has settled and the job's done. And then, then we come, right, we're, we're here now. It's too late then. So let us, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just to give us the ability to, you know, to focus on the right things in life and not to be distracted with things that are not going to benefit us. Jazakallah khair for that, Kamal. Um, I just wanted to point out, I think Brother Muhammad uh, Nasir put a very nice comment um, in the uh, chat section, so it's worthwhile reading. Unfortunately, I ran out of time, so I wasn't able to read that. And um, just a reminder to all the brothers and sisters that uh, tomorrow, Saturday, the 31st of October, uh, there's an international conference that the brothers have organized uh, titled Return of the Islamic World Order. Uh, it starts at 2 p.m. So, inshallah, uh, go on the website and register. Uh, there will be brothers uh, from various countries in the world 
uh, talking about various topics um, that are essential for us to return or bring back the Islamic world order. Um, so inshallah, uh, join the brothers and sisters tomorrow in the conference. Uh, that's uh, 2 p.m. tomorrow afternoon, inshallah, uh, online. And inshallah, we'll finish off with Surah As. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wal-As. Inna l-insana Allah fi khus. Illa al-lazina amanu wa amilu salihat. Wa tawawso bil-haq. Wa tawawso bil-sab. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sirah, and much more. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, and Sirah are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com.